Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome back to the podcast our manager, my old friend, the Bob Evans of the left, Nando Vila. Now, you listeners might know Nando as the former co-host of The Jacobin Show and a general left-wing personality, but he's so much more than that. Oh my God, he is a soccer god, a, a, a soccer knower, a knower about soccer. He used to, in fact, co-host the TV show Soccer Gods. He hosted the podcast We Came to Win. And in fact, he's also the host of the best soccer podcast in the world, which is an anthology series of iconic moments that happened during the World Cup. So Nando, maybe you could just tell us a little bit of like wh- why you like soccer, what's this new podcast, and what do you think examining soccer allows us to you know, understand politically? Well, um, soccer is the greatest sport in the world. There's a reason why they call it the beautiful game. It's um, conquered the world, really. I mean, it's every country um, at a certain point or another, even the United States succumbs to its charms eventually. You know, and I've I've always been obsessed ever since I was a little kid. Um, you know, Albert Camus, the philosopher, says that all he knows in life he knows from soccer. So, you know, so he was Camus said pace. it, you know, yeah. and it yeah. must, must be true. You've probably read Camus. I have not, but uh, I, I have. <laughs> what's his whole deal? One day you'll explain it to me. Over He's an years, existentialist. So. Perfect. And so there you go. Soccer um, explains it all for him. And so, yeah, we got this new podcast called The Best Soccer Podcast in the World. Um, it's with iHeartMedia, and it, it just kind of goes through. Um, a little bit of soccer history, uh, especially around the World Cup, like uh, iconic stories. Like, for example, we have an episode on Zidane's headbutt um, that goes deep into that. We have uh, an episode on the 1998 final um, where Ronaldo, the best player in the world at the time, mysteriously had a seizure right before the match. You know, we do we do all kinds of things. We we tell the story of when Bulgaria um, committed a little bit of light illegal L- immigration dozens of to get into France to, this, to so play I in a world cup qualifying match. And then eventually made the semifinals of that world cup. Um, we talk about the, about the Yugoslavian civil war, all that good stuff. Um, but all having to do with soccer, um, an iconic world cup moment. So yeah, I hope people check it out. Yeah. So yeah, everyone check that out. So before we even get into it for, for people who might not be sports heads, why is the World Cup such a signal event in sports? I, I, that's such a basic question, but like, why is it so huge? Well, I mean, it, it's it's mainly because soccer is the biggest sport in the world by by I think some distance. It, you know, I mean, it's it's a cliche to say it, but you know, outside of the United States, in almost every country, it is the the top sport. I mean, there's some exceptions, like you know, you know, India, maybe it's cricket uh but uh in 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 almost every corner of the globe it is the biggest sport and it's also kind of the longest mass popular entertainment sport you know in that it's been it's been popular since you know the 1930s and 40s and so the world cup has always been its crowning its crown jewel in the sense that it, it happens only once every four years which I think is part of why it feels so special every time it comes around. And, it, it, you know, for whatever reason, it feels, you know, as, as tainted and corrupt and disgusting as, as FIFA is, 
the fact that it's nations competing um, and the best players in the world playing not for money, but for glory, because they don't, you know, they don't get a huge percentage of their salary from the world cup or international play. It's, it's, it's tiny compared to what they get paid in their day-to-day clubs. Um, It also just, it has that kind of feeling of something is a little bit more pure about this, that the competition and the, um, and the motivation of the athletes is, is essentially, you know, for the love of the game uh, rather than for, you know, the millions of dollars that they would make uh, with their club, which there's always that suspicion, right? Like if you support Manchester United and you sign some Brazilian superstar, it's like he doesn't give a shit about Man United or the people of Manchester or the history of the club, uh, you know, Busby's Babes and and all the great tradition. He's just showing up for a paycheck and yeah, he's trying to play well, but he's not like, there isn't the same level of emotional connection as there would be when he puts on the iconic yellow jersey of Brazil and is competing um, for the love of the, you know, 200 plus million Brazilians that are just like obsessively following this uh, every single second during the World Cup. I mean, it's just a completely different vibe, so to speak. So this leads me into my next question. Are, are most soccer players monogamous? In what sense? Well, I mean, are they a poly? I mean, definitely most of them are definitely poly, but I, 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 I don't know if you meant like in some way. No, like, I just, uh, I, no, could you maybe just describe, sense. no, no, no. Could you maybe just describe for people who might not know how that works? So there's, there's club teams and then there's national teams. So yeah. like you could be from anywhere and then you're hired to play for some major team and then you return every four years or is it more frequently than that to your home team? It's it's more frequently than that. You, you're playing all you know all throughout the year in various kind of smaller uh, things. Like for example, World Cup qualifying. Like you know you need to play to qualify for the World Cup. So you know South America has their own little system. Europe has their own little system. Africa, etc. They all have their own little system. So players go back and compete to qualify for the World Cup. And then there's also kind of smaller tournaments. Um, each region um, has their own kind of tournament. Like Europe has the Euro Cup every four years, which is a pretty big deal. You know, it's just not as big of a deal as the World Cup, but it's kind of the next, right, like the next tier. And then South America has the Copa America, which is also kind of a pretty big deal in South America. But, you know, the rest of the world isn't obsessively watching the the Copa America. I mean, the World Cup really does have this feeling of the entire globe is watching. I mean, and it literally is. I mean, it's basically like, you know, I don't know what the latest uh, viewing figures are, but it's, it's certainly probably close to half the population of the world is, is, is paying attention to this in some way, shape or form. And I mean, it really feels like, you know, as global event as one can get, I mean, especially with the collapse of the interest in, in the Olympics, right. Which was the other kind of big uh, global sporting event. I mean, but it's just kind of fallen by the wayside in terms of general interest. So expanding on that a little bit, um, can you talk about the sort of international class structure of, of football in the sense that these national teams and the, the tournaments in which they play, it's, if I'm, you know, let's say I'm in Argentina and I'm a, you know, big soccer fan or I'm, I'm, I'm a Brazilian, I'm a big soccer fan. If I want to watch my country's best players play club matches, I gotta, I have to watch, you know, Paris, I have to watch Neymar play for Paris because that's yeah. where all the money is. It's in Europe. So all the great players from these other parts of the world wind up eventually playing in a European league somewhere. Uh, but the national team is my one chance to kind of watch the players that I like, uh, that I want to root for, play in a context that I, you know, would maybe be more interested in rooting for them. And is that, is that fair to say? 
Absolutely. And that's a relatively recent phenomenon, Derek. Um, you know, globalization, our favorite thing, you know, uh, that happened in the 90s. You guys are well aware of it. Um, the very, really, oh, this is a pro-globalization podcast, please. Absolutely. Uh, be careful here. Uh, Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Abs- absolutely. Like, uh, um, but really, the soccer was revolutionized by, by globalization um, starting in the 1990s. In, in the previous to the 1990s, Um, There were huge restrictions on the amount of foreigners that could play at these big clubs. So, um, you know, in 1980, if you were Liverpool, your whole team was English guys. And then maybe you had one or two foreigners um, that you could you had like one or two slots um, of foreigners that you could that you could sign. and, And yeah, like the best, maybe the best, best, best Argentine players were playing in Europe. But 99% of them were playing in Argentina. So the World Cup was really this really cool thing in which for the first time you got to see how they stacked up against some of these other teams. You know, it was, that was one of, you know, and before like kind of satellite TV made it easy to broadcast games all over the world. Like if you were a fan of Argent in Argentina, like if you were literally like born and living in Argentina, you could literally could not watch Manchester United play. It was impossible. You were only watching the Argentine League. And so when the World Cup came around and all of a sudden these English guys were coming in and they looked all different and, you know, and you just you'd heard about them from from reports and stuff like that. And they maybe had some notoriety, but you've never really seen them play. It was the first chance you got to do it. Nowadays, a huge amount of the uh, uh, percentage of the players of the World Cup play in Europe. I mean, I don't know what the latest figures are, but, you know, certainly of any of the good players, like the vast majority of them play in Europe. And so you, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to watch them, I mean, there is interest in, in the European leagues all over the world. I mean, they, they too have been um, globalized in that sense. Like the Premier League is watched in Asia and in Africa and, 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 and all over the world. But but uh, you know your local leagues have really suffered um, as a result. I mean, it's it is it is a case where you know in soccer, the same global forces, the so global economic forces that you see kind of in, in other and in the other industries are are the same, and that it, it just has really globalization has kind of done this concentration of wealth at the top and um, and really devastated kind of vibrant local economy, so to speak, in 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 terms of uh, in terms of the leagues. So uh, that, I think, naturally brings us to FIFA. Um, So could you talk about literally what is FIFA? What is its authority? Uh, And as you gestured toward, it's famous for being incredibly corrupt. What is that corruption uh, and what does it look like? It's it's a good juxtaposition, like the purity of the players in the tournament versus the organization, which is just riddled with. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Neda, go ahead. No, no, no. It is. It is. That's exactly right. I mean, it is. It is. It is a perfect juxtaposition because the players are, for the most part, you know, they're they're quote unquote pure in the World Cup. I mean, they they're just not motivated by money. It's just that's just the the, the reality of it. You know. Um, but FIFA very much is, um, and it's, and it's a structural thing. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it was an inevitable, it it was an inevitable thing that happened was that FIFA will inevitably be a corrupt organization. It always will be. And it was always destined to be because it is this kind of supranational organization, kind of not really based anywhere. Um, and that governs the laws of all of global soccer. Okay. So like, Everything from the organization of the World Cup to ultimately like the laws of soccer, like the rules, literal, like, you know, the rule of play, um, but also like the registration of all the federations and all that stuff. Like it all is all governed by this kind of supranational organization um, that kind of 
sits above national governments. And yes, like, as you mentioned, it's a comically corrupt. And the reason for that is because there's so much money sloshing around and because it's not really part of any one national regulator or government, it kind of sits above them or really kind of amorphously among them. No real, it, there's no international organization able to kind of sit on top of it, if that makes sense. So once billions of dollars start sloshing around um, soccer uh, because of international broadcast rights and you know, the real kind of innovator here was a guy named Joao Avalanche, who was a Brazilian guy, who was the guy who realized the potential of this. You know, it was inevitable that it was just going to be a, a sort of how much money can you bribe me uh, <laughs> situation. Is, is it literal bribes? Are we talking yeah. like transfers into banks? Like what? what yeah. is the bribe? Okay, that, absolutely. How is that not illegal? How are people not caught? Are people caught? Do people periodically go to jail? Like what's people the like, sort of tenor of that? People do periodically go to jail. Um, you know, there's a really famous, the United States really famously kind of cracked down on its own, um, kind of neck of the woods, which is CONCACAF, which is the sort of subdivision of FIFA that governs the, uh, North America and the Caribbean. Um, and you know, a bunch of people went to jail, um, involved in that. And so, so every periodically people do go to jail, um, especially in, let's call it like the developed world, you know, you have to be slightly more careful uh, if you're an American Federation official and you and you want to do the and you want to do the corruption. But if you're in a kind of part of a a weaker kind of regulatory state, say like I don't know the Congo or whatever, you know what I mean, or some small. Because the thing is, like the United States Federation has equal voting power as like Equatorial Guinea and like whatever small, tiny country you can imagine, they have one vote in the whole thing, um, each one. So like, it's very easy to, the, to bribe an official from a, from a, from a smaller nation and things like that, which, which isn't to say that the big countries don't participate in that corruption. They absolutely do, but the stakes are a little higher. It's a little harder to prosecute someone in, in a neck of the woods. That's not as, doesn't have as powerful a regulatory state. So this brings us naturally to the question of how, does one decide where the World Cup is held? And why don't we use that as an entry into how did Qatar get the World Cup? So they basically do it every, every they traditionally did it every four years. Like I think it was usually two World Cups of head. So they would announce it at the end of, of a World Cup. They would announce where like the next, like two World Cups of head were, were, where it would be. So like, you know, in two, it, traditionally in like 1994, they would announce where the 2002 World Cup was going to be held. Right. And it, ba- it literally is basically a, 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 a vote system like countries present a candidacy and then the individual member states of FIFA, of which there are, you know, it's one per country um, vote to decide where it is. You know what I mean? So uh, they get together, um, usually in Switzerland. Um, and and they and they do like little there's like politics and there's campaigns and all that stuff. But they they basically get together and each member state has one vote and they decide which one of the candidacies presented get the world cup. The peculiarity of, of the cutter and you guys, is, is the, is the house pronunciation in American prestige cut, cutter? Uh, cause I, I've so never really gotten the, the, clarity the, on the that. Arabic one is cutter, right? Okay. Derek, you live there, right? So Derek, how do you, uh, how did, did you say it? Yeah. I mean, it's, 
Qatar. Yeah, like Gulf Arabic is even a little more guttural. Right, but it's hard for Americans to say guttural. Yeah, like the the modern standard Arabic that nobody actually speaks. It's like Qatar, but Qatar is you know Qatar's fine. We don't need to be snobby about it. So the peculiarity of of Qatar getting the World Cup is that, um, like I said, traditionally it was two World Cups of head, but in 2012, in which they were supposed to just announce the 2018 World Cup, they announced two World Cups. They announced Russia in 2018 and Qatar in 2022. They just skipped ahead four years. You know what I mean? They just like did a double whammy. This was completely unprecedented. Um, uh, I mean, there's no like law, obviously, but it was it just completely broke with tradition, and people were just like, "Huh, that's weird." Um, and basically, what it was is that the regime of FIFA at the time um, was governed by a bunch of like really old. I mean, this sounds kind of like a joke, but it was like literally governed by a bunch of really really old guys. Seth yeah, Blatter. people with American politician ages. Exactly. Yes, it was a total gerontocracy. Um, you know, run by literally a bunch of old guys. And what basically happened is that a bunch of the bigwigs at FIFA, famously Sepp Blatter, the, the, the president of FIFA at the time, but also Grondona, who was the head of South America, and, um, you know, the, the Jack Warner, who's the head of the Trinidad um, uh, uh, delegation, but who's a very powerful figure within FIFA at the time. Um, they basically got together and they were like, let's get, a, let's get another payday. You know what I mean? Like, we're not going to be around for that much longer. Um, we're old. Uh, so let's get another payday. And they essentially just, they, they got two for the price of one, you know, because there is no doubt in my mind that Russia also participated, you know, basically, uh, bribed people to, to get, the how World dare Cup. you, that is not the yeah. American that, prestige yeah, position. You guys are pro Putin, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everyone knows that. Uh, and uh, um, and then they were just they just like took another one from 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 the Qataris. Um, and I, I can't tell you at the time just how weird it was. Um, people were like, "Huh?" I, this was like before Doha and like that part of the Middle East was kind of like a thing the way it is now. Like you know, Dubai. Like the, that was like no one knew what the fuck this was. Like no one had ever heard of this place, and it was like, "What the fuck is going on?" Um, and for, for, for many years after that, there was just an assumption, I think, when a lot of people just assumed that it was never going to happen, you know, that it just wasn't that something was going to happen. They took the bribe, but it wasn't going to actually they weren't going to actually follow through with it and that it was going to eventually go to like the United States or something, you know. And there was this question at the time, like there's no soccer stadiums in, in Qatar. There was no soccer culture at all in cut in Qatar. It's fucking hot as tits there, and the, the World Cup is always held in the in the summer. Like it just is for a million reasons. Primarily, the you know that the the, ba- the major European leagues are off during the summer, so they can they can you know play <laughs> the World Cup in in the summer. And there was just an, always an assumption that it was just going to fall through. That they were just they were never going to do it. And then as it got closer, they were like, no, we're moving it to the winter. They decided this like three or four years ago, or maybe a little bit more. And everyone was like, how is that going to work? Like, that's, that's insane. I mean, they, there's a, there's a really funny story because the, 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 what moves the vast majority of the money in the world cup is the TV broadcast rights. And the, the biggest TV markets are the United States, Europe, you know, these kind of bigger, more, more wealthy countries, they pay more for, for the broadcast rights. But because the world cup is, is traditionally held in the summer, it's very attractive for a TV broadcaster because there's not a lot going on in the summer. Right. Um, in the United States, in right now, 
there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's all kinds of competition for eyeballs. And, and, and so like first and foremost being the NFL, the most popular sport and league in the United States by a huge margin, you know? So now the world cup is competing against the NFL. So the U S broadcasters are like, guys, like we paid a billion dollars or whatever we paid. It's usually like a billion plus for the broadcast rights to the world cup because it gives us counter programming in the, in the summer at a time when there's nothing else going on. And so then FIFA was like, okay, guys, don't sue us. Take the next world cup for free. Because it was this gerontocracy that was like, you know, like they didn't give a shit about, you know, the money down the road because they weren't going to be around. So U.S. broadcasters got an extra World Cup out of out of this move from the summer to the winter. Here's like a naive question. I, I know that FIFA is corrupt and I know nothing about soccer. How come there's no way to reform this organization? Who's going to reform it? Like well, there the, is no the politics UN. for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like there, who's going to... Like who's, who's motivated? Like there is no politics of it. There is no base to reform it. There is no regulatory mechanism for it. There is no, so then here's a, then, then here's the next question. Why not just legalize the corruption and just have it be, you pay whatever. And whoever's the highest bidder, that's where the world cup comes from. That's, that's, it's like kind of in this liminal space, but it's open corruption. But it's it's it would have to be like a, a situation in which like a bunch of countries got together and agreed to do that. And it's like, oh, yeah, the United States and Germany and France and Egypt and Argentina and Brazil are going to get together and agree to just like, oh, we'll just allow this corruption. and We'll just make it legal. Like there's always going to be some parties that don't again it's it's the same problem as like why isn't why don't the world just do something about climate change i mean obviously much lower stakes and much lower you know, who gives a shit really at the end of the day but it's the same exact thing it's like yeah well, all the, the countries the question to is to agree the to it for that so <laughs> Nando, maybe i'm not i'm not understanding correctly like what are the capital interests behind fifa because climate change is like the oil whatever the oil blah 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 like what what are the interests behind fifa besides the people who are literally in the organization so, I mean, it's a combination of like on the one side, it's multinational media organizations, broadcasters, the sponsors and whatever. But really what it is, it's it's the reason why it, we, we call it corruption and not just like an open market. So because it's it's these kind of quasi public organizations in 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 these in these countries, meaning like the Soccer Federation of Spain and the Soccer Federation of Morocco and the Soccer Federation, they're kind of these quasi public institutions like it's hard to call them like a capital interest but they're kind of the they're the ones sitting there being like yeah pay me and you know uh and we'll and we'll do it but so it's um, like a form of public corruption almost it's like pseudo public corruption kind it of. is yeah i mean this yeah. is what we understand as corruption right like we don't really call you know you know what i mean like people don't get as, fed, as as worked up about like private corruption i guess you know what i mean like just business people paying each other off. And that's like, that's why the FIFA thing um, rankles so many feathers is because it's like these kind of quasi public officials just, you know, openly taking bribes. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so, um, you know, like that's, that it's, 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 this, it's the same kind of problem of coordination and that there's like, yeah, if we had a global state, you know, with actual power and actual politics and, and whatever, um, FIFA would get reformed and climate change would get fixed, but, but we don't, so it won't, you know, it's the same kind of basic principle. 
So why don't we get into this particular World Cup? Because, I, I mean, you see headlines with thousands of workers have died in the construction yeah. of God. Like, could we talk about what Qatar has done in how the last 10 years go since they first announced it? What has happened and what's the political story there? So they've invested like probably hundreds of billions of dollars into this thing. Obviously, the building of the stadium is being first and foremost because they, they basically had no no stadiums in the country, but also just broader infrastructure to, to support, you know, the millions of people that show up at any world cup. I mean, it's not, it's not easy um, to absorb that many people at one time and, and be able to, you know, house them and feed them and, you know, entertain them and, and all that stuff. So they, they, there was, there's a ton of uh, investment there. And then they literally just invested billions of dollars in creating a soccer culture. I mean, they, they built like one of the most world-class, um, soccer training facilities uh, in in the world. Um, they hired a bunch of like A level talent to kind of run and manage this. I mean, the most famous of which is Xavi Hernandez, who's one of the most the best players of all time. Um, won the World Cup with Spain in 2010. Um, when he was kind of on on the end of in, toward the end of his career, he went and go pl- and played in Qatar in the league, and then became the coach of the biggest Qatari team. Um, the coach of Qatar is also from Barcelona. It's a funny little wrinkle. Uh, they, they basically, because Barcelona, the team was considered the, the most world-class soccer development program, you know, around, um, the Gulf States essentially paid all those people to come and run their organizations like Manchester city, which is run by, um, uh, Abu Dhabi, um, paid the president of Barcelona to go and be their president, <laughs> Ferran Soriano. And then they hired Pep Guardiola, who was the coach of Barcelona, to be their coach. Um, and Qatar paid Xavi Hernandez and a bunch of other guys from like the kind of Barcelona structure to, to, to create basically a soccer culture there and teams and training facilities and, and, and all that stuff. And then, yeah, in order to build all this stuff, they just essentially uh, imported modern-day slaves. And there's no other way to put it. Um, from places like Nepal, most famously, but really from all over the world, um, kind of luring them in with the promise of, of work. I mean, it's kind of like the indentured servitude uh, program um, from, from back in the olden days um, where they're like, yeah, come here and work. And they're like, okay, great. And then they get there and then they essentially imprison them, take their passports, uh, force them to live in these wretched camps, uh, build the stadiums and in, you know, oppressive heat with, in horrible com- conditions. And then, you know, thousands of them died. Now, I wonder if you could talk a little, uh, a little bit more about this, because there has been this, um, you know, kind of feeling that the Gulf states are sports washing their mm-hmm. international reputations. Um, I mean, there's there's a Gulf system, right, that that is very alien to people in the West. And it, it's basically, you know, you forfeit most of your rights to a, an absolutist monarchy. And uh, because we have a lot of oil or a lot of natural gas, whatever, you'll be taken care of to, to some extent financially. Qatar mm-hmm. is like the, the archetype of this because it has so much money. Uh, and so small a population that that it's really able to provide a standard of living to people that buys, I think, a lot of contentment, despite the fact that you are living in a state where your freedom of expression, your freedom to uh, sort of live your life is is fairly restrictive. 
but these guys seem, you know, these guys want to play in the the sort of international big leagues with with Europe, with uh, the United States. They want to be, you know, feted by the media, all these things. And so you've had uh, th- there seems to be this focus on soccer. The Saudis bought New Newca- uh, was it Newcastle? I think Newcastle, Newcastle United. United. Uh, yeah. You you mentioned Abu Dhabi buying Manchester City. Uh, the the Qataris bought uh PSG and have like spent yep. a fortune attracting you know bringing players into uh yep. to PSG just like world class players. Can you talk a little bit more about this uh totally. you know really sustained effort by these these countries to to do this. Yeah, I mean and and, and you you know the dynamics of the Gulf better better than I would, but cuz the feeling that I get just as a pure sports fan is that the Qataris do it worse? That they're just kind of like a lower rent version of like that Abu Dhabi is like more polished in their in their sports washing. Like they're they what they've done with Man City has been legitimately impressive, um, and um, you know like it, it they've just been smoother at running the operation than Qatar has with their World Cup and and with PSG, which has been way more shambolic um, and kind of heavy handed in a way that 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 you know. Uh, Manchester City has just been incredibly smooth in the way it's run. Um, I but, think that's. I think that's di- in general. Uh, yes, I mean to to say. I, I would say like the, the UAE has a much smoother kind of public relations operation than the Qataris in general. I think, and they've been yeah. at it longer than the Qataris have, and and I, you know I think that's that that jives with with um, you know kind of yeah. in general how these countries operate in this this arena. Yeah, like the 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 chairman of Manchester City, um, who's a guy from the UAE, I forgot his name, but he like I've seen interviews with him, and he's just like the typical guy that probably was educated at, you know, Oxford and you know, UPenn Business School or something like that. Is just unbelievably smooth and polished, and understands kind of like how to operate within the UK without making anything, you know, without rankling too many feathers, and you know what I mean. And and has again like they 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 did this kind of best in class. Uh, type of very business school type of thing. It's like, oh, Barcelona, you know, has the best in class, uh, you know, development of sports. Let's just let's just import that and those practices to our system and whatever. The management of PSG, which is run by this cuttery guy called uh, Nasser Al Khalifi. I mean, he's just like the opposite. I mean, he is not smooth at all. He constantly puts his foot in his mouth. He's he's just heavy handed and not as polished in, in the way. But but the the broader dynamic stands in that Saudi Arabia is now getting into the game with Newcastle United. It really started out with Russian oligarchs. They were kind of the, uh, the innovators in this when Roman Abramovich uh, bought Chelsea. I think that that was a watershed moment in, in sports. Um, that was a that was what gave the idea to a bunch of these other guys. And they were like, oh, you can just buy one of these like huge historic teams for like a relatively low price, you know, given what the money that we have that buys us like immediately millions of fans around the world, you know, that, that are just going to like, you know, kind of defend our interests. I remember like there was a, the big thing like was like, you know, Chelsea fans just like loved Roman Abramovich because he bought a bunch of players for them and they immediately became really good and they won the champions league and all that stuff. And they were like, yeah, I'm into it. You know, like, I'm not going to like, I'm totally going to support my team over, you know, whatever concerns of, corruption or Russian, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and it's, it's a, it's a dynamic that's been playing out for the last 20 year, 20 or so years. Um, and the Gulf States have just really kind of transformed it in terms of how much money is poured into this. Um, it really is astounding. I mean, it's just, there, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. And again, part, back to the globalization uh, conversation, 
because soccer was globalized and because it adopted a kind of more neoliberal model of governance of just kind of free market, you know, rules, it opened the door for this. Ironically, the United States runs its sports more like a Stalinist regime. Like the United States does not allow this kind of thing. It's just much more difficult. Um, They're run really like the, the United States leagues are run kind of like cartels. Um, and, and they're very careful about who they let in and, 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 and the, 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 the laws that govern their internal mechanisms are, are way less quote unquote free market. Like there's things like the salary cap and, and a million other, you know, kind of peculiarities that, that kind of fly against free market rules. The, the soccer is much more kind of neoliberal in its in its in its govern governance model um and uh and and has just opened the door for this um because these teams are relatively cheap given uh how much money is sloshing around uh in 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 the gulf and uh, buys you immediate like goodwill especially if you do it well um and especially if you buy uk teams i mean that that's the big lesson of cutter buying psg is that buying psg gives you nothing because psg like no one gives a shit about them you know, and they've imported Messi, and Neymar, and Mbappe, three of the biggest stars in the world, and no one gives a shit. You know, like it just it, it's what you really got to do is buy tradition and history, and looks like increasingly in the in the English Premier League because it is by far the most popular league in the world. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I've been still thinking about this, but I, I think you know your the comparison between what the the UAE or what Abu Dhabi did with Manchester City, which was buy into a more prestigious league and put the effort into running a, a good club versus yeah. the cutteries. I mean, it's, it's sort of cliche, but um, you know, just like they just threw an avalanche of money at it. And I think totally. that sort of sums up the way those two, those two states kind of approach this kind of international playing in the international stage. Derek, you know, what would be funny is if you became like a soccer pundit now, just predicting like the success of teams just based on your knowledge. Like I'm genuinely curious. Who who owns them? Yeah. Yeah. Like how are this, how is Newcastle going to fare with the Saudi ownership? Like how are they uh, compared to the UAE or, or Qatar? You know, I I mean, their players are going to be lucky if they don't get drafted and sent to Yemen. So I wouldn't, uh, (laughs) I wouldn't make it. So basically if you're a, if you're a great player, avoid Newcastle, but sign for Man City. Yeah, okay, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would not want to play for a Saudi-owned team just because I'd be afraid of getting a call to come into the consulate or something. That's that's pretty dangerous. <laughs> uh, so, Nando, I, I'd like to get your take because I'm sure you have paid more, far more attention to sort of media coverage around the tournament uh, than I have. I'm curious your take on how the media has handled uh, something that Danny brought up earlier, the issue of the the workers worker deaths. Um, and I'll give you my sort of impression here, which is the 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 initial report of you know 6,500 workers died working on World Cup projects, which came from the Guardian, I think. And I, I feel like they kind of fumbled the bag because it wasn't quite what the statistics said. It was 6,500 people died in the 10 years after Qatar was awarded the World Cup. So we, it's, you know, some portion of them certainly must have, been, must have died uh, working on World Cup projects, but it's not quite the, the, the kind of banner headline that The Guardian put out. And that's given the Qataris uh, a, a very easy way to push back against criticism right. on this issue. On the other hand, um, you know, you, get, you, you look at, like, the International Labor Organization's comments on, on this and, and just in general sort of the... Um, what's known about cuttery 
labor practices and ex- expat labor practices. And it's, it's brutal. I mean, it's, it's, you know, they're brought in under, as you said, sort of modern slavery conditions. Um, we know that even this 6,500 number, the books are, are cooked in that, in, 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 even in that kind of, um, you know, shocking figure because the cutteries don't count things like death from heart attack or death from, uh, stroke. Right. As, as deaths on the job, even though those are the things that you die from when you have heat stroke because you've been building a stadium in, you know, 110 degree heat. Uh, so I'm, I'm just curious, you know, how, how, you know, has, has there been any discussion of this in sort of the sports world and the sports media or is everybody just kind of agreeing to, to not talk about it? I think there's been some discussion of it, but there's not been as much as you, one would think or one would like. I mean, again, there's a focus on the deaths, which is a little bit like, you know, talking about American slavery and focused on focusing on the deaths. I mean, obviously the deaths that came from American slavery are bad, but like also the slavery was bad, you know? Um, And the, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like debating the deaths of American slavery is like a weird thing. I mean, obviously it's an important decision to, to know, but like, we, we can all agree that, you know, whether it was X number or Y number, the fact of the, of the slavery itself is, is the real kind of moral. Uh, yeah, there's sort of a, right, it's, it's a moral affront in and of itself. Like, well, that in and of itself, the, yeah. The effects of it, yeah. And, and like I said, you know, obviously, like, there's a, there's a lot of been talk, there's been a lot of talk about, like, how many people died building the stadiums. But Qatar uh, and, and Doha essentially had to pour a ton of money to build all kinds of other infrastructure that wasn't just the stadiums to support, you know, the, the hosting of a world cup. So whether they died building one of the many stadiums or they died building like a, a, a train system or a hotel or a whatever, um, you know, who gives a shit. But the, the, the fact is that they used modern slavery to, uh, to, to be able to host this world cup. And that's been kind of, I mean, it's been just kind of like, it's, it's one of those things like, it's almost like too bad. It's almost so bad and so difficult to wrap your mind around that you can't confront it head on. And I think that that's been what a lot of the media coverage has collectively felt like is like you're asking like a sport, a guy who's used to covering, you know, X's and O's and, and the narrative around sports and then asking that person to then confront modern slavery. It's like, you, what is your brain even? How do you even like compute that? And it, I think that, that there's a little bit of that. And then there's just almost been like a little, a lot more focus on, and this kind of maybe is a sign of the times, but a lot more focus on, you know, Cutter's homophobic record, um, you know, or like anti-gay policies, and 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 granted, Cutter has been much more heavy-handed about the way they have handled that than the way they've handled the um, the the modern slavery question, which, as you said, was given an open an opening by this kind of maybe slightly shoddy framing uh, in the guardian, but you know, there's been a lot of talk of like media members, um, you know, the, the kind of big defiant move to do if you're a media member covering the Qatar world cup is to wear a rainbow armband or like a, or like a gay shirt, you know, like the England national team shirt, but it's like rainbow um, and things like that. And, and Qatar has been incredibly heavy handed in a way that's like completely counterproductive to their whole sports washing project. And, and I would get, to, I would actually be curious to hear, your thoughts on on why or that that is because um like may like grant wall who is the most important american soccer journalist by a huge distance like he is the 
you know, the American soccer journalist is a guy named Grant Wall. You know, he was like detained, you know, like after like tr- and and had his phone taken away and like pictures deleted and shit like that. You know what I mean? Like they had no smoothness in in and so there's been a lot of there's been a lot of talk about the the homo the you know the homosexuality question and 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 I would say like not as much talk about the modern slavery question again because I think people you know you see those reports and you're like I don't know like it's not like a lot of the journalists were there covering this um, how do they really know um, there's there's just like a lot of doubt and again it's like such a big question and such a horrible question to confront that I think a lot of people's brains just can't quite wrap their mind around it to to actually cover it in, a, in an effective way. Yeah, I mean, I feel like LGBTQ issues are, are the other big piece of this in terms of the uh, the way the cutteries have been challenged. And it's it's almost it's it's been very weird to me to watch this because it's you have to know if you're going to, you know, pay whatever bribe money you had to pay to get the World Cup. You have to know you're going to get people in from all over the world and they're going to come with, uh, you know, they're going to be gay, straight, whatever, you know, anything, you know, on the rainbow there. Um, and, and you, you would think you would be prepared for that. And I feel like they, they were to a point, but then it became, it's some weird internal dynamic that I can't really kind of right. put my finger on, but it feels like they were ready for it. And then, you know, the fans started descending on, on Cutter and it was just like, whoa, we didn't know it was going to be like this. And yeah. so they, they like put the foot down, which has been very, again, ham fisted. Yeah. I think it, it reflects a, a lack of sophistication in, uh, in terms of, you know, kind of the, the public relations aspect of this, if, if nothing else. Yeah. But I, I am, um, I mean, you've talked a, a, a fair bit of, about that. The other, uh, really noticeable thing that the Cutteries did, uh, in terms of like, kind of abruptly reversing course and I think ways that put FIFA you know in a in a, a potentially vulnerable position was the question of uh, alcohol serving alcohol <laughs> at the stadiums and Budweiser I mean this is you know it's a little less serious than than yeah. you know homophobia and arresting people for wearing a rainbow shirt but it's still you know part of this kind of lurching back and forth between like we want to play with the uh, you want to play in this environment but we also you know don't want to do anything that uh, threatens, you know, or, or, you know, kind of seems to undermine our national values, whatever those may be. And, and, you know, they, they pulled the plug on beer sales. And I'm curious, you know, you, you know, this end of things, you know, much better than I do. Uh, what is, what does that do to, to FIFA, given that Budweiser is such a huge sponsor and, and they have, uh, you know, they they come in with an expectation that their beer is going to be sold, uh, to people in the stadiums. And also, uh, there was that, that, funny scene with the ecuadorian fans you could talk about yeah, that maybe that yeah. was hilarious the new let's go brandon uh is is is, is the, <laughs> the ecuador fans yes. you know like um yeah they so they you know you, you mentioned that they banned alcohol sales in the stadium um and uh there was a, an ecuador the first ecuador match was against cutter it was the opening match it was against cutter the host, as the host nation they, the host nation always plays in the opening match um and the ecuador ecuador was winning um because the cutter team was comically uh, bad and um the ecuador fans were chanting in the stadium as they were up to to nil they were they were chanting queremos cerveza Quere-? like we want beer we want beer and the, the broadcasters were going like the ecuador fans are chanting si se puede you know like yes we can <laughs> <laughs> it's so good i mean uh, you know when you mentioned the question of budweiser which is again this is the hilarious 
it's it's a hilarious uh, example of corporate globalization bumping up against you know a kind of a repressive authoritarian regime and it's it's a little bit like that let them fight meme you know what i mean like obviously I, there's no love like for you know like oh shit budweiser like they they paid bajillions of dollars and to to get sponsors and they can't sell beer in their own state in the own, in, in the very stadiums that 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 they're sponsoring but it is just a hilarious example of it um and you know again it just it just what it, what the beer thing contributed for the most part is this general feeling of weirdness and of just fakeness of this world cup in a way that there's just something so odd about it you know the fact that it's in 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 Qatar in the first place. Like I said, when it first was announced, people were like, "Huh?" Like they know literally nothing. They, they it's like announced in a place that no one's ever even heard of, and it just gives this whole this broader feeling of unreality. Um, and and again, one of the things that the media it's been interesting watching you. I've been thinking a lot about the media question since you asked it. But one of the one of the things that's kind of been very common is there's there's certain people in the media that are just like wholly bought off. Like there's a hilarious example of like um, in the UK, there's a, a really famous soccer pl- a former soccer player named John Barnes, legendary Liverpool player and uh, on the England national team for many years. Uh, he's like bought and paid for. And he's like the guy on, on British TV saying like, what are you guys talking about? Like, you're, oh, you're going to come into, you know, this culture and tell them how to live their lives and blah, 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 blah. But then like there's videos surfacing of him, like, you know, just doing ads for like a Qatari state funded, you know, tourism board or whatever. Um, and then there's kind of like the right, you know, when the right wing kind of gets their hold on on liberal hypocrisy, which is a thing that, uh, you know, I think also on the left are are you know, can also identify liberal hypocrisy, but like when the right does it, you know, that's why we get so mad at the libs, right? It's because you're just giving them the fucking thing, you know, like Piers Morgan, like the, the most famous example of it, he's like, oh, you know, like the U.S. doesn't commit war crimes, like the U.S. is hosting the next World Cup and like, oh, the U.S. doesn't commit war crimes and like you're mad about the work, like the, the human rights abuses of, uh, of of Qatar, but like not the human rights abuses of like, you know, what, how many countries in the World Cup like have not committed human rights abuses and can, you know, can claim moral purity and like, you know what I mean? Like, so there is an element, that's another element of, of, of the media coverage that especially a lot of right-wingers have kind of uh, uh, have latched onto, which again, you know, like many right-wing critiques of liberalism, you're, you're like, you know, it's like, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole uh, in Lebowski. You know what I mean? Like there's, there, the, yeah, I see the point. Yeah. And it is kind of fresh for the United States to criticize any country for anything as like, you know, the purveyor of like such a huge amount of violence. But there's also like, that kind of relativism, you know, gets you in in and puts you also in a kind of weird position. Um, and again, I think with the, the difference with the with the Qatar World Cup and 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 other World Cups, and like, yeah, okay, like you, it was hosted in Russia, and yeah, people like were you know, it was also pre Ukraine invasion and stuff like that. But um, there was like some talk like, oh, Putin is bad, but like whatever, you know what I mean. But um, the difference with Qatar is that it's so it's that it's so much more naked and that the world cup is so much the, their entrance on the world stage, you know, in many ways. And that it's like the, the, it's like so directly tied to the tournament, like Russia hosting the world cup, like Russia was like, people knew about Russia. They're not like doing it. You know, they're not like, they didn't have to do anything special to host the world cup. They have a huge soccer culture. They have this, like they have the infrastructure, like there was no kind of, they just hosted the world cup and it was like a, it was fine. You know, like in Qatar, like they, the whole thing is about this, you know what I mean? So there's a slight difference there as well. Um, 
but yeah, it's just it just contributes to the whole sense of general weirdness of 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 this World Cup. So for our final question, Nando, what do you think has been learned or do you think anything has been learned from this experience? Is anything likely to change in the future or is this just going to be more of the same? I mean, the, the, the money will continue to talk, right? Yeah, well, the money, yeah, the money talks. And um, I mean, I think one of the, the and this is like, this would be like a, a, a more interesting American prestige episode than, than, than one guested by me. But I, I do sense that there's, Something going on with, you know, because I know that the, the relations between Qatar and the rest of the Gulf states, you know, kind of strained. And there is an element of like Saudi Arabia was in this World Cup and like the FIFA president, Gianni Fantino, has made like a point of being at the stadium himself, like when Saudi Arabia plays. And, you know, like how this World Cup has played in terms of internal Gulf relations, you know, between uh, the Saudis and Qatar and whatever, like that's kind of one to watch, especially Saudi Arabia's relationship to FIFA. I think that's one to watch going forward, whether like, you know, um, at the end of this World Cup, uh, Gianni Infantino announces that after the 2026 World Cup, it's going to be hosted in Saudi Arabia in 2030 or whatever. Um, and uh, so so there's, there's kind of interesting questions there in terms of like what is learned. Um, the next World Cup is in the United States, Canada, and Mexico as a kind of tripartite hosting thing. It's like, um, you know, it's going to be much bigger. They're expanding the teams. I think ultimately FIFA, what they have learned, and there's a new regime at FIFA, crucially, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the gerontocracy that I described, um, uh, run by Sepp Blatter, most of those guys are either dead or or gone, or some of them are in prison and whatever. There's a kind of new regime in FIFA. And I think what they're trying to do, which is also just as ruinous for many soccer fans, is that they're just trying to they're trying to max they're trying to max out the, the, the business of the World Cup. And one of the things they're doing is they are uh, expanding it to 48 teams. So from 32 teams to 48 teams in the next World Cup, which is like just cheapens the com- the competition. You know what I mean? There's a there's a there's something to like limiting um, the amount of people that can compete in it because it makes it feel more special. If you expand it to 48 teams, it's so many countries, like there's not that many great teams out there. So you're going to get a lot of shitty games, you know, um, in, in, in the next world cup of what they're seeing is that like TV money talks, that's the biggest thing. And like, we can, we, instead of just being comically corrupt and like, like literally just like having Qatar give you a suitcase, uh, full of cash, um, you just max out the actual business of it by, Again, expanding the amount of teams, which means more games, which means more, you know, more broadcast rights and similar things happening in American sports where they're just like, you know, ex- you know, just expanding the, the leagues as much as possible to get more product out there. But they're also seriously discussing moving it from every four years to every two years uh, again, which, you know, makes a certain kind of cold business sense because there's the the money flows every two years instead of every four years but again kind of cheapens it you know what i mean um there's a there's a part of you know waiting around for the world cup kind of makes it feel bigger when it come when it finally does come around and if it's every two years then you're like okay well what's changing it what's what's stopping them from making it every year and then when you have the world cup every year like is it really as special as 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 the world cup every four years but again you you can't you do see this trend where that 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 dynamic does happen in other sports, but it, you know, the money just keeps getting bigger. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it feels shittier from a fan perspective, you know what I mean? But 
but the money flows. And so I think that that's kind of the big transition from FIFA again, from just like this kind of more old school, stupid, comically corrupt to like a slightly more professionalized uh, corruption in which what they're really doing is just kind of uh, maxing out the business to a point where they're going to ruin the game. Um, I just want to say for people who think that you were like being facetious about Saudi Arabia 2030, that's, I mean, that's one of the leading bids at this point, right? For 2030 is Egypt, Greece, and Saudi Arabia have their package deal. So, I mean, that that could very well um, happen. I don't know what the other, uh, you know, what other bids are are coming through, but. I just can't help but notice that Gianni Infantino, the head of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, one of the funniest names of all time. By the way, we didn't talk about Gianni Infantino's incredible press conference. Like one of the best press conferences I have ever seen. I mean, it, like it was just mwah, chef's kiss perfect. Like right before the World Cup when he did the Andrew Cuomo, like I am a migrant worker. I am gay. But he's Italian. He's like actually Italian. He's not, he's not like an American Italian like Andrew Cuomo. So he's just got like that extra level of of uh, of, of comedy to it. He's, he claimed that he was bullied when he was in school because he had red hair. Um, now he's fully bald. Like, uh, but, you know, I guess he had red hair when he was a young kid and he was bullied in school for that. So that's the same, you know, that's the same as, you know, as what when people talk shit about about Qatar for, you know, imposing. Prejudice against the red hair is, is a thing, man. I, I, I'm i with him on this. It, it is. It's true. <laughs> Um, and you know, but I, I can't help but notice that he's just been at, I think he's been at two of the three Saudi Arabia games. Like I noticed, I just noticed that he was at the last one, which was like not a big game. You know what I mean? It wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't like Spain, Germany or, you know, like whatever, you know, like it was, uh, it was just kind of a whatever game and Johnny Fantino was there in the stands. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if he's taking that Saudi money, much like, you know, golfers are doing it, WWE, like Saudi is using sports, uh, or trying to use sports um, very clearly as a way to, you know, to buy some goodwill. Nando Vila, thank you so much, and we'll have you back soon. Thank you, guys. You know, it's good to be on uh, the American Prestige podcast, the you know the top <laughs> uh, global affairs podcast in the world. Uh, and 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 shout out to all the prestige heads out there for making this possible. <laughs> thank you. Are, are we still number one in Iceland? I can't remember. Oh God, yeah, yeah. that was that was the highlight of my life. When you guys, you guys should do like a, a live show in Iceland. I mean, one of the funny things about the, I think it was, was it the last World Cup or the last Euro Cup. I can't remember if it was the last World Cup or last Euro Cup. But like Iceland was in it and they did quite well. And they, there was like funny stats because Iceland's so small that like it's like something like you know half of the male population in a certain generation was like on the Icelandic team you know what I mean and like <laughs> you know like and like the, the, the you know when Iceland plays uh you know something like you know like a tenth of the world of the of their population is like in the stadium um it's it's hilarious so you guys should do an American prestige live show in Iceland uh and yeah a good chunk of the uh, uh of the population might show up <laughs> that's a good idea Jake get on that Hell yeah.